Thank you for listening to The Real Deal with Damian Adams. This is Real Sports Talk for the Real Sports Fan. And I definitely appreciate all you Real Sports fans who are listening right now. If you're listening on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, please do me a huge favor and leave this podcast a five-star rating at one, two, three, four. That five-star rating review will definitely be appreciated. If you're listening on any other platform, that could be Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, Podomatic, wherever, please share from that platform so that your friends and family can see the podcast, listen to the podcast, subscribe, and then share it with their friends and family. I'm trying to get this podcast to the highest levels of podcastivity, and I need your help to get there. It will be truly, truly appreciated. Big time episode for you guys today. Just me and you today. Just me and you. Just me and you. Ooh. Ooh, I feel like I'm getting better and better each week with the notes. Like, I'm just killing it right now when it comes to the singing. (laughs) But this episode is a big one. A lot of boxing. Some basketball as well. We're going to, of course, preview Errol Spence Jr. versus Terrence Crawford. That's coming up on Saturday night. I'm going to count down my top 10 point guards of all time, finish off my top 10 by position series I've been doing for basketball. But we got to start with my recap of Naui Inoue versus Stephen Fulton that just went down, probably finished about 40 minutes ago. And I said I was going to come here and do a recap right afterwards. May have my word. Very, very tired, but full of coffee right now, so we're going to get it. Yeah, this fight came on very early in the morning. If you're not familiar, it was in Japan. So Japan, you know, the time difference is crazy. It was nighttime over there, like 8, 9 o'clock at night, which meant it was here. If you're on the East Coast, it was 8 a.m., but I'm on the West Coast, which means the fight started around 5 a.m. for me, and I actually watched some of the undercard as well. So I was up at like 2.30, 3 o'clock. The dedication, okay, <laughs> to the sport of boxing that I have, but it's what I truly love, you know, sports period, but boxing, man, has a special place in my heart, and I definitely didn't mind getting up early to watch this one, because Naya anyway is special. Stephen Fulton is a great fighter, so this one had the chance to be a classic, but it wasn't a classic bout. But it was a classic performance from Naui Inoue. Dominant performance. He won by eighth round TKO over Stephen Fulton. And to start the fight, you saw it right away. First round, Fulton comes out and he's hesitant, right? And at first, he's kind of just maybe just trying to see what it is, right? You know how they have that round or parved around where... Both guys are trying to study each other and find the distance. And you saw NUA doing that for a little bit. But then he started to attack. And you saw Fulton realize, yo, this dude is fast. Like, he's not just fast, but he's fast. With three or four S's in it. Fast. It was crazy to see the speed advantage that... Anyway, had over Fulton in this one. Fulton is no slow dude. He's a great athlete. Someone who has had the speed advantage in most of his fights up to this point. So going into this fight, I thought, okay, Fulton, good athlete, size advantage, very good boxer. He may be able to pull off the upset, right? And I picked Fulton for the upset. I was clearly wrong. 
about that as anyway right away showed that he had the speed advantage. So then you go from, okay, how can Fulton adjust? First three rounds, don't really see Fulton doing much. He's very hesitant. Um, in the first round, my note was anyway was busier with the jab and controlled range. So you saw that anyway, even with having a shorter reach, was able to control the range, right? Like you saw him be able to really dictate what was going on out there. And Fulton doesn't get dictated to in that way. You gotta remember, Fulton came into this fight undefeated as the defending unified champion at 122 pounds. So for Inouye to come out right away and dictate the action really showed a lot. In the second round, he got even more comfortable and started to open up his offense. And you saw the speed advantage again in the second round. In the third round, Fulton tried to adjust by saying, okay, I'm going to go forward. I'm going to fight on the front foot, right? He's like, okay, I'm going to fight on the front foot. And I'm going to make sure that Inouye feels my presence. And even in doing that, Inouye was able to counter off the back foot, going backwards, able to make Fulton hesitate. Fulton was marching forward, but not pulling the trigger. In the fourth round, Fulton opened up a little more. And he was like, okay, maybe we're starting to see some things. At that moment, I was like, okay, this is where Fulton makes the adjustments. And this is where the fight becomes closer. Right. And to his credit, he did make some adjustments in the fifth round. He started to open up a little bit more. But my note was that Fulton has to take more chances. In that fifth round, you saw him land some good right hands. You're like, OK, OK, I see you with the one of my keys going into the fight was to make Inouye back up. Because Inouye, as good as a counter puncher as he is, he normally counters by going backwards and then coming forward. So he likes to make you miss by him stepping back. And then he counters by coming back forward. So my key for Fulton was, if you're going to throw straight punches to make him back up, throw those in combination. And he only did it once. One of my combinations I wanted Fulton to throw was the one-two-one, which is the jab, straight, and jab again. So if you're throwing those three punches going forward and the other person isn't going side to side, they're backing up, you're going to hit them with one of those punches or at least going to make them fold up and make them have a high guard to where it opens up other punches for you. Because if they're going backwards, they're not going to be able to dodge those punches for too long. The ring is only so big. He only did that one time. If he would have did that combination a bit more, maybe he has more success. But honestly, the power difference was so major that it's hard to even think about what Fulton could have done differently to win the fight. Because he only got one round in my book. And honestly, if you scored it a shutout for any way, that's not crazy. Uh, it just was such a difference in speed and in power. Fulton, that's the one thing that's a weakness in his game going into this fight was the lack of power. But you figured with his size advantage, he would be able to at least use that as far as maybe not the punching power, but... The power as far as being able to push your way around, be able to lean on him a little bit. And you didn't even see that. Uh, Fulton was not able to pull the trigger for the most part. Uh, in the sixth round, I, it was a close round that I gave to NUA. I thought that 
Fulton really started to open up a bit more, land some more right hands. I believe the sixth round is where he did do that one combination of the one-two-one where he backed Inoue up. Inoue got caught with the jab on the back end. I'm like, okay, this is where it's at. Seventh round, I gave to Fulton. I thought Fulton did a good job of landing counter right hands. He landed a beautiful counter right hook over the top. And when Inoue tried to come in with a jab. But he wasn't able to time Inoue on jabs to the body. Inoue did a great job of jabbing to the body, jabbing to the body, and doing it in different paces. It was never the same cadence. He always changed it up. He, he would faint, then go jab to the body. Or he would jab to the body right away. Or he would do a slow jab to the body, go up top. Jab up top, then go jab to the body. Like He always changed it up. You never had a pattern to try to pick up on from Inoue. And in that seventh round, even though Fulton won, Inoue seemed to be setting something up which we saw in the eighth round. So Fulton gets more comfortable, right, in that seventh round. You're like, oh, okay, he's a little more comfortable now. I can see the point to victory for Fulton. You have a lot to bet to make up, right, because he's down six rounds to zero and maybe has that one round in the seventh round. A lot of ground to make up. Needs a knockdown maybe to try to win this fight. But in the eighth round, you saw him, anyway, jab downstairs again. Jab, jab downstairs. And he's so quick with that jab downstairs that Fulton, who normally would be quick enough to counter with the right hand over the top, was not able to do that. So when he's not able to jab over the top, he's just getting caught. That's just points racking up, right? So then you're thinking about it. Okay, can I anticipate that jab downstairs? So instead of just reacting to it, you're trying to guess when that jab downstairs is coming. So now that you're thinking about that jab downstairs, it opens you up for what? The right hand over the top. And what was the punch that ultimately hurt Fulton and led to the knockout? The right hand over the top. So he does a jab to the body in UA and then comes with the right hand over the top. And because Stephen Fulton was so worried about that jab downstairs, his hands lower, right hand over the top, hits him clean. And you see him get wobbled, he's hurt, and then he finishes off with a left hook for the knockdown. Fulton gets up, but he's not quite right. He's kind of trying to just survive. And NUA, one of the best finishers in the sport, goes ahead and finishes him off with just a flurry of combinations. And Fulton goes down again. Referee does a good job and says, hey, that's it. We're going to stop the fight. Great stoppage. No, no need to continue the fight. So now the question is, since NUA is now a champion at 122 in his fourth different weight class, what's next? What's next for the best guy in boxing. Yes, he's pound for pound number one. There's no doubt about it. In my last pound for pound rankings, I had him at number two. There's no doubt that he's number one pound for pound. Four different weight classes in such a dominant fashion to defeat Stephen Fulton like this just speaks volumes, speaks volumes, man. And gotta give anyway all the credit in the world. So now the question is what's next for the 30 year old? He's still in his prime. Still wants to accomplish more. So he could take on uh, Marlon Taples or Tapalis or Tipilis. If I'm pronouncing that correctly, he's the other champion at 122 who has the IBF and WBA belts at 122. Uh, if that fight happens, definitely anyway would be the favorite there, a heavy favorite in that one. And he could become undisputed at 122 after being undisputed at 118. Definitely be an historic achievement there. Now, if he 
doesn't want to become undisputed. That's not a big thing to him. Maybe he wants to try to become a five division weight champion. And he goes up to 126. Now, it is very interesting that Robisi Ramirez, who's the WBO champion at 126, was on the undercard for this fight in Japan. Now, sometimes in boxing, you'll see a little sneak introduction done to try to introduce a fighter to a different fan base, to prime that fan base to see him later and be interested in that fight. I remember when I went to watch a Floyd Mayweather fight. It was Floyd Mayweather versus Robert Guerrero, if, my, if I remember correctly, the ghost, Robert Guerrero. And on the undercard, you had Canelo Alvarez take on Shane Mosley. Now this is an older Shane Mosley, wasn't prime Shane Mosley. Canelo Alvarez won pretty easily. Canelo was already a big star in Mexico, right? And when Canelo was fighting, the crowd was chanting, Canelo, Canelo, right? It might have been Victor Ortiz fight, if I remember, now that I'm thinking about it, but one of those four Mayweather fights that I went to, Canelo was on the undercard, and you saw that he already had a big fan base in Mexico, but this was an introduction to the Floyd Mayweather fan base. And then, maybe a year later, year and a half later, we got Floyd Mayweather versus Canelo Alvarez. We could see the same thing here with Inoue versus Robizi Ramirez. Robizi Ramirez was very, very impressive on the undercard in his win. And you saw the dominance there and the power that he has at 126. Now with Inoue, he's somebody who started at 108, now at 122. Going up to 126, you would think would be something that may be a a big challenge for him, but he's somebody who has shown he can transcend weight class with his power and he can go up to 126 and maybe still be a knockout artist there. We may see, you know, maybe I'm reaching a little bit on the introduction to a different fan base. Maybe they just wanted to put Ramirez on this card because it's a top ranked card and they wanted to showcase his talent, but it could be a little seed that's planted for the future there at 126. He has a lot of options at 126 as well. You got uh, Luis Alberto Lopez there. You also have Lee Wood, who he would be a big favorite over as well. Ray Vargas. Uh, he has some options, man. So he can go for Undisputed at 122 or try to move up to 126 and take on Robizio Ramirez, which would be an easy fight to make since they're both on top rank. I'm just so excited for his future. I can't wait to see what he does next. And I think it's going to be great, man. But this dude is the best pound-for-pound fighter in the sport. Uh, for Stephen Fulton, man, just try to, you know, learn from this loss. And he can still go on at 122. And maybe he takes on um, Marlon Tapalis and try to get some titles in that way. Or maybe he moves up to 126. He has options as well. He's still a great fighter. He just ran into somebody who's special. And sometimes that happens. Sometimes you have a very good to great fighter who runs into special. And that's what you saw today in that one. Excellent fight, man. Or excellent performance, I should say, from our NUA. And I can't wait to see what's next for him. So we're going to take our first music break. When I come back, we got more boxing to talk about. We got a preview. Errol Spence Jr. versus Terrence Crawford. We'll be right back.
Come on, man. And with the milk of DBC News, Edo Cool J with a triumphant comeback. More Just pay.
Welcome back to The Real Deal with Damian Adams. Hopefully you enjoyed that music break. And hopefully I can continue to blow your mind with this boxing content. As we get ready to preview the big fight on Saturday, Errol Spence Jr. versus Terrence Crawford for the undisputed welterweight championship of the world. Two undefeated fighters who look to be at their best going into this fight. Errol Spence Jr. is 28-0 with 22 knockouts. Terrence Crawford is 39-0 with 30 knockouts in his career. Errol Spence is 5'9 and a half with a 72-inch reach going against Terrence Crawford, who's 5'8, but has a reach of 74 inches, which he has unusually long arms for his size, which has worked to his advantage in his career. So what are the keys to victory for each fighter? You have two fighters who have very few holes in their game. So how do you take advantage of those slight holes? Because no boxer is perfect, but these clue, these two are definitely close to it. Errol Spence, man, he's been fighting at 147 his whole career. He's the naturally bigger fighter. So my first key for him is to be physical. Now, some people may hear that and think, well, Sean Porter was physical with Terrence Crawford, and that didn't really work out for Sean Porter, right? Sean Porter has been reported that he didn't have the best training camp going into that fight. And at points, he tried to, for some reason, outbox Terrence Crawford in that fight. I don't know if he was trying to prove he can be the traditional boxer, but Sean Porter's strength is to muck it up and make it ugly and fight on inside, which he was not able to do against Terrence Crawford. Now, the reason that Errol Spence may be more successful with that type of game plan is that he's more technically sound and has more power than Sean Porter. So I think if he can be physical with Terrence Crawford and work on the inside, so get on the inside, get close, Make Terrence Crawford uncomfortable. And when you're on the inside, work the body. So you have to be very, very careful with this as well, though. You don't want to open yourself up to counter punches from Terrence Crawford. Terrence Crawford is very good at timing you and countering to the body. Uh, one of Terrence Crawford's biggest highlights was when he knocked out Julius Ndongo. And he did it with a body shot, counter body shot, right in the midsection. Took all of the wind out of Ndongo. He was done. Errol Spence has to be careful of that. He doesn't want to go in recklessly, try to work on the inside, and then open himself up to one of those big counter punches. But he does want to work on the inside. He does want to try to smother the offense of Terrence Crawford. So if he's on the inside doing the work, of course on the inside it's easier to go to the body there than it is from far away. Now if you're going to the body from far away, you open yourself up to counter shots, which Terrence Crawford is very good at doing because of his timing and speed. So key number one, be physical. Work on the inside. Push Terrence Crawford around a little bit. Key number two, work the body, right? You go to the body, talking about hooks, uppercuts, constantly hitting them, touching them to the body. Not everything has to be a knockout shot, just constant touching, make them aware of those body shots. Key number three, both guys are southpaws. Now, Terrence Crawford, we know, can switch and do the switch hitter thing. But 
he's going to fight Southpaw for the most part. Especially fight another uh, against another Southpaw. I think that it's going to be to his benefit to fight from the Southpaw stance for the most part in the fight. He might switch it up from time to time just to give him a different look. But I see both guys being Southpaw for the most part. And because of that, I think the right hook for Errol Spencer will be a big key. You don't want to go too left-hand dependent. And because Errol Spence has such a good left hand, straight left hand, Terrence Crawford, whenever he wants to move and reset, he's going to try to escape to Errol Spence's right side. So whenever he's trying to escape to that right side, that's when the right hook has to come into play. It can be right hook to the body or to the head, depending on where you're at and where your position is. But he has to make Terrence Crawford pay for trying to escape to the right with that right hook. If that right hook is there consistently and it makes Terrence Crawford think about where he's going, maybe he tries to escape to the left and that's where you hit him with a good left hook or a straight left hook because now he's thinking about which way he's going to go. But if he's able to consistently escape to the right side without any danger of the right hook, it's going to be a long night for Errol Spence. So the three main keys for Errol Spence Jr. Be physical. Push him around a little bit, work on the inside. Body work. Get to that body. And the way he gets to the body is by setting things up, going to the inside, and that body work on the inside is going to be much easier. Key number three, the right hook when Terrence Crawford tries to escape to the right side. I think that punch is going to be a major key for L. Spence. Now, what are the keys for Terrence Crawford? The jab. He has to jab consistently. That's why I think he should stay in the southpaw stance for the most part. Because if he's in the orthodox stance, the jab becomes less effective against the left-hander. But if he's in the southpaw stance, both guys will open up now to the jab. I think that Terrence Crawford does have the better jab of the two. So he can use that jab. And sometimes he gets away from his jab because he's so good at timing you and counterpunching. But he has to use his jab consistently in this one to set up other punches and to give something for Errol Spence to think about when trying to get on the inside. You constantly hitting him in the nose with that jab is going to make him hesitate when trying to get on the inside. Key number two, movement and don't be prideful. So Terrence Crawford is somebody who has a lot of pride and that's definitely shown in his ability to fight any style, right? And when I say don't be prideful, I'm not saying that in a bad way. I'm saying he can't try to stand there on the inside and trade on inside work with Errol Spence. Errol Spence is going to win that inside battle. So he should try to move around, stay on the outside. And he can go on the inside every once in a while, but one, two, three punches maybe, back out. Back out. And that's when he's going to try to escape to that right side to avoid the left hand of Errol Spence. And if Errol Spence is not throwing that right hook on time, it'll be an easy escape. Key number three, body counters. So I mentioned it earlier, he's very good at countering to the body when you're throwing punches. He's very good at throwing in between your selections, right? If you're you know, trying to throw a three-punch combination, he's very good at throwing that one punch in between your three punches. That'll be more impactful than your three punches. So Terrence Crawford should look for those counters to the body when Errol Spence tries to open up. 
Uh, but both guys are going to be cautious to start the fight. I can see the first few rounds being quote-unquote boring because both guys are going to be respectful of the other because they know the other guy has real deal power. And that's something that you can't just go in there and act like that's not real, like that's not going to affect you, right? And then the middle rounds, I picture Errol Spence kind of taking control, being able to get to the body and being able to work on the inside and maybe get Terrence Crawford against the ropes in those ways. Uh, Terrence Crawford will have success as well with the jab, being on the outside, land some counter shots. I think it's going to be a very good fight. I picture Errol Spence being able to wear down Terrence Crawford because of his size, because he is a naturally bigger guy, more power, the body work, and eventually Errol Spence will win by decision, but a close decision. Now, I've been on a little losing streak lately when I picked upsets. This will be an upset as well. Terrence Crawford is the favorite. But I believe in Errol Spence because of the size, because of his boxing acumen, and because of the way he can adjust throughout fights. He's been able to fight so many different styles. You watch the fight against Mikey Garcia, it's a completely different style than the fight against Danny Garcia or the fight against Sean Porter. He's very versatile. Terrence Crawford is very versatile as well, but I believe that on the inside is where Errol Spence has the advantage. On the outside is where Terrence Crawford has the advantage, and he won't be able to stay on the outside for the entire fight. So give me Errol Spence by decision in this one. <sighs> Tough one. Tough one to pick. Great fight. You should definitely watch it. My diehard boxing fans already know I'm going to watch it. If you're just a casual, you should watch it. Go to somebody's house. They're having a fight party. Go check it out. It's going to be a good one. Errol Spence by decision is my last prediction, though. Let me know if you think that you know I'm correct or if I'm wrong. Let me know because I was definitely wrong about the NUA fight. You know, I tried to go against the grain on that one. This one, I have more of a, you know, a belief in my prediction that Errol Spence will pull off the upset and win by decision. But Terrence Crawford definitely is known to be slept on. Can't wait for this fight. Man, I'm so excited. <laughs> so we're going to take our next music break and talk a little basketball. You know, I'm continuing my series of counting down the top 10 by each position all time. And this one was by far my hardest list to make. Top 10 point guards of all time. So we're going to take our next music break and be right back talking some basketball. So she bent on when that dynasty sign. No use me 
tryna be lying, I've been tryna be signed, tryna be a millionaire, how I used to lifeline, in the same hospital with Biggie Smalls died, the doctor said I had blood clots, but I ain't Jamaican man, story on MTV, and I ain't tryna make a band, I swear this right here, is me in the making man. I really apologize for this one right now, it's, it's unclear at all man, they got my mouth wired shut for like, I don't know, the doctor said like six weeks. So yeah, we can start by having some surgery on my jaw. I look in the mirror, pass my jaw in the back of my mouth, man. I'm totally I'm still here for y'all right now, man. This is what I got to say right here, though. Yeah. Turn me up, yeah. Uh. What if somebody from the shadow was ill, got a deal on the hottest rap label around? But he wasn't talking about cooking birds, it was more like spoken words. Except he's really putting it down. And he explained the story about how blacks came from glory and what we need to do in the game. Good dude, bad night, right place, wrong time, in the blink of an eye, his whole life changed. If you could feel how my face felt, you would know how Mace felt. Thank God I ain't too cool for the safe belt. I swear to God, drive a two on a two. I got a lawyer for the case to keep us in my safe. Safe, my dogs couldn't tell if I look like Tom Cruise on Vanilla Sky. It was televised. It's been an accident like Geico. They thought I was burned up like this. He did my coat. I must got an angel. Cause look how death missed his ass. Unbreakable. What you thought they call me, Mr. Glass? Look back on my life like the ghost of Christmas past. Toys of us where I used to spend that Christmas cash. And I still won't grow up. I'm a Grown ass kid, swear I should be locked up for stupid that I did, but I'm a champion. So I turn tragedy uh -huh. to triumph, yeah. make music that's fire, yeah. get my soul through the wire. Woo. You know what I'm saying? When the doctor told me I had a um, I forgot to have a plate in my chin. I said, dog, did you realize I'm never making on a plane now? It's bad enough I got all this jewelry on. She can't be serious, man. Welcome back to The Real Deal with Damian Adams. Hopefully you enjoyed that music break. So now we're going to get into a little basketball. Like I was saying earlier, it's going to be the end of my series where I'm counting down the top 10 players by each position. So if you want to, you know, hear my top 10 centers, power forwards, small forwards, or shooting guards of all time, just go back and listen to the past episodes. You'll catch those. Today is the top 10 point guards of all time. And this was the hardest list for me to make. There's so many great point guards throughout history. And it's tough to make these lists because sometimes you'll have a player that you believe is a better talent, but they don't have the accolades of a player you're comparing them against. For example, last week, Vince Carter didn't make my top 10 shooting guards of all time. And if you know me at all, you know Vince Carter was my favorite player growing up. He's who I emulated my game after. And maybe I should have did somebody else because I didn't grow up to be 6'6". But that's who I wanted to be was Vince Carter. And in my nine and ten spots on my shooting guard list, I had Ray Allen and Reggie Miller. I believe that Vince Carter is a better player than Ray Allen and Reggie Miller if I'm looking for to start a team. Like if I'm just picking players in their prime to give me the best chance to win, 
I might pick Vince Carter over those two guys. But those two guys were able to accomplish more in the playoffs. Reggie Miller was the best player or 1A slash 1B on a finals team. Vince Carter didn't have that on his resume. Ray Allen was the best player on the team that went to the Eastern Conference Finals in Milwaukee Bucks in 2001. Vince Carter doesn't have that on his resume. So things like that could have one player over the other on a list like this. So with that being said, let's get into my top 10 point guards of all time. Number 10, Russell Westbrook. Uh, Russell Westbrook is a very polarizing player, especially these days. Um, but when you look at his career, man, the dude has accomplished so much. He was the first player to average triple-double since Oscar Robinson. So 50 years had gone by without somebody averaging a triple-double. He was able to do it in today's day and age, which is definitely a big accomplishment. You have to give him all credit in the world for that. And one thing you can never accuse Russell Westbrook of is not giving his 100%, not playing his hardest. He's going to go hard the entire time. That's what he does. And with somebody like that, it's going to be respect given for that. But also, there's going to be people who respect that so much that they overlook his shortcomings, right? Like his field goal percentage or turnovers, things of that nature. So there's going to be people who are upset that he's at number 10. There's going to be people who don't believe he should be in the top 10, period. There's going to be people who are like, how could you not have him in the top six? Like, that's how polarizing he is. So it's going to be very interesting to see what the reactions are to this list. But Russell Westbrook at 10, nine-time All-Star, two-time scoring champ, three-time assist leader, Won the MVP in the 2016-17 season. That was his best season as a performer. That year, averaged 31.6 points per game, 10.7 rebounds, 10.3 assists per game, and shot 42% from the field. I believe that his best playoff run was the prior year in 15-16. The last year he played with Kevin Durant. Uh, that season in the playoffs averaged 26 points a game, 11 assists, and 7 rebounds in that playoff run. Of course, that playoff run ended with them blowing a 3-1 lead against the Golden State Warriors. Golden State went on to lose a 3-1 lead against Cleveland. We all know what happened from there. For his career in the regular season, 22.4 points per game, 8.4 assists, 7.3 rebounds, shot 43% from the field and 30% from three so far in his career. For his playoff career, 24.5 points per game, 8 assists, 7.2 rebounds on 40% shooting. So Russell Westbrook's at 10. At number 9, I got Steve Nash. Uh, this one was tough for me to like try to, to really place these guys. But Steve Nash, the uh, reason I have him at 9 is the efficiency that he has in leaps and bounds over Russell Westbrook. 8-time All-Star, 7-time All-NBA, 2-time MVP. Now, can those two MVPs be disputed? Yes, I did an episode a couple months back where I went over all of the questionable MVPs, in my opinion, from all those years, from this past year all the way up to like 97, right? So covering a long period of time. And both of Steve Nash's MVPs can be challenged, right? But he does have two MVPs. He did lead the league in assists five times. His best season as a performer, ironically, wasn't one of those MVP years. It was the year after. So he won MVP in the 
0405 season and then won it again in the 0506 season. But I believe his 0607 season was his best season where he averaged 18.6 points per game, 11.6 assists per game, shot 53% from the floor, 45% from three, 90% from the free throw line. That efficiency is crazy. Crazy to be that efficient. Uh, for his best playoff run was also was the 0506 year, the year prior. That season averaged 20.4 points per game, 10.2 assists per game, while shooting 50% from the floor, 36% from three, and 91% from the free throw line. Uh, for his career in the regular season, 14.3 points per game, 8.5 assists, shot 49% from the field, and 42% from three for his career. Steve Nash, man, uh, really was a big part of the game kind of changing. When you think about how he was able to take advantage of the less less physicality being in the game. And once they took out hand checking, he took off. And that's when he got two MVPs. And had that third year where he could have won three straight MVPs. He could have been somebody who was on that short list with Larry Bird, right, where he has three straight MVPs. But Dirk won it that year, and Dirk definitely deserved it. Dirk went nuts that season. But number nine, I got Steve Nash. Number eight, going with Jason Kidd at number eight. That's going to be a controversial one. People, he's somebody who people are very up and down on. Some people were like, man, he couldn't shoot. His field goal percentage was horrible. Why is he top 10? Some people are going to be like, man, he was the best player on two teams that went to the finals and won a championship later in his career. He should be higher. Again, this is a very tough list to make. But I have my number eight, 10-time All-Star, led the league in assists five separate times, six-time All-NBA, Rookie of the Year, nine times All-Defensive team. So that's one of the reasons he's at number eight over Nash and Westbrook. His best individual season was the 0203 season with the New Jersey Nets. 18.7 points per game, nine assists per game, 6.3 rebounds, shot 41% from the field and 34% from three. In those playoffs, he upped everything. 20.1 points per game, 8.2 assists per game, 7.7 rebounds on 40% shooting. Uh, for his career, 12.6 points per game, 8.7 assists, two steals. 6.3 rebounds on 40% shooting and 35% from three. His improvement as a three-point shooter throughout his career is crazy. Like if you look him up on basketballreference.com, where I get a lot of these stats from, one of his nicknames, they have all these funny nicknames for players. One of his nicknames is Asen Kid because he had no J, right? And he was able to really transform his three-point shot to become later in his career a very good off-the-ball three-point shooter, which helped teams be successful, like that Mavericks team that he won a championship on in 2011. So Jason Kidd, who's I have at number eight. Number seven, Chris Paul. Uh, Chris Paul is a five-time assist champion, 11-time All-NBA, nine-time All-Defensive guy, six-time still champion, rookie of the year. His best season, the season I thought he should have won MVP, was the 2007-2008 season. He averaged 21.1 points per game, 11.6 assists per game, 2.7 steals on 49% shooting and 37% from three. In those playoffs, 24.1 points per game, 11.3 assists per game, 2.3 steals, and shot 50% from the floor. 
He led the league in both assists and steals that season. Uh, for his career, 18 points a game, 9.5 assists, 2.1 steals per game on 47% shooting and 37% from three. For the playoffs for his career, 20 points per game, 8.3 assists per game, 5 rebounds, 48% from the field, 37% from three. Uh, Chris Paul is criticized for some of his playoff shortcomings, but I believe that his playoff resume is actually a lot better than people realize when you look at his overall stats. Dude has always balled out in the playoffs. He's had some bad moments, right? You think about the comeback that Houston had against the Clippers. You think about the comeback that the Thunder had against the Clippers and that crazy game where they had all those turnovers in the last minute of the game. Some of those moments stand out. But Chris Paul has also had great moments. Game-winning shot against the Spurs in Game 7 of the first round. I'll never forget that shot because it was the same day as Floyd Mayweather versus Manny Pacquiao and the Kentucky, Third, <laughs> Kentucky Derby. Uh, we were in Vegas watching it at Hooters. Uh, when he hit that shot, you know, waiting for the fight to come on. And that was a crazy series. One of the greatest one of the greatest first round series of all time. Spurs, Clippers, 2015. And the fact that he was able to come through with that game winning shot. The problem with Chris Paul is and the reason that he's not higher on this list is health. Right? Seems to always get hurt in the playoffs. He was even that game winning shot I'm talking about. He was limping after that because he hurt his hamstring. Um, so with Chris Paul, if he could stay healthy, if he could have stayed healthy, right? Because He's at the latter part of his career now. But if he could have stayed healthy, he would have been high on his list for sure. Chris Paul I have at number seven. Number six, I have John Stockton. Uh, John Stockton is a 10-time All-Star, 11-time All-NBA. Uh, led the league in steals two times. Led the league in assists nine times. What? Nine times. His first, in all, his first all-time in assists and steals by a wide margin like his assist record and steals record probably will never be broken you know like it's been a long time since he set those records and he set them out a long way a long way and when you look at some of the years that he had you can see why it's such a long way for assists and steals and his durability is something that is remarkable everybody talks about you know lebron james when it comes to durability or Kareem Abdul-Jabbar when it comes to durability. John Stockton may be the most durable athlete ever when you look at what he was able to do. Only missed games in two seasons of his career. Two. He missed four games in a season and then in his I believe it was the second to last season or excuse me it was the second the first season they made the finals I believe is where he missed almost 20 games so two seasons where he missed games the rest of the games or the rest of the seasons he played all 82 or all 50 in that strike shortened season durability crazy one of the reasons he has a record for steals and assists is that not only was he doing it at a high level but he was doing it day in and day out like mr consistency when it comes to that his best overall season was the 89 90 season where he averaged 17.2 points per game and 14 14.5 assists per game. Stupid. Shot 51% from the field and 41% from three. Now, he wasn't out there shooting a crazy amount of threes. He wasn't Steph Curry. But when he did take them, he was efficient. Uh, his best playoff run was the 96-97 season. That was the first year he made the finals. Averaged 16.1 points per game, 9.6 assists per game. Shot 52% from the field and 38% from three. Uh, for his career, 13.1 points per game. 
10.5 assists, 2.2 steals, shot 51% from the field and 38% from three. For his playoff career, 13.4 points per game, 10.1 assists, 1.9 steals on 47% shooting. And you hear stories about how he was just such a competitor and how people just, you know, respected him so much for how he played, even though some people consider him a little dirty. But they knew that he played super hard and that it was going to be a tough night every time he played against John Stockton. I love uh, Baron Davis' story against playing against John Stockton. Like, John Stockton wasn't this crazy good athlete. So you imagine someone like Baron Davis in his prime would be able to have his way with John Stockton. But he was like, nah, John Stockton was so strong, so physical, and had such a mental hold on the game at that time that it was tough for him. And you hear these stories from all these guys who played against John Stockton and how tough it was. Uh, some people will be mad that I got John Stockton at six. Like, how can he not be higher when he's the all-time assist leader and all-time steals leader? But when we talk about the top five, <laughs> when I get to that part of this countdown, I think you'll understand why. So to recap my 10 through six, number 10, Russell Westbrook. Nine, Steve Nash. Eight, Jason Kidd. Seven, Chris Paul. Six, John Stockton. So we're going to take our last music break when we come back. Countdown five through one of my top point guards of all time. We'll be right back.
much real hip hop. Half the time, be them niggas who fucking album flop. You know, done sank and it ain't left the dock. Come on, man, cause I'm hot. Just mad cause he like you ain't gotta give me my props. Just give me the yacht. Give me my rocks and keep my fans coming in blocks. Till you talk to Super Bowl, keep your mouth on lock. I'm away. I'm cocky on the mic, but I'm humble in real life. Taking nothing for granted, lesson everything on my life. Trying to see a new life at the top of the roof. Baby, paint not single, but I speak the truth. I eat the food, belly acting so uncrazy. Top down, shirt off in the coop, spreading the loot with my family and friends. And my closest of kin, and I do it again. If it means I'm a win, dirty Welcome back to The Real Deal with Damien Adams. Hopefully you enjoyed that music break. If I had one wish, it would be for this podcast to become the biggest sports podcast in the world. If you are a fan of the podcast, please, please share this with your friends and family. Please subscribe, listen, rate, and do all the things that will help this podcast go forward. And it's free. It's free to help me out. You know, I'm not asking for any money, anything like that. Just move your thumb a couple of times. I would truly appreciate it and make my one wish come true, all right? So now let's continue my top 10 point guards of all time. Let me give you 10 through 6 one more time before we move forward. Number 10, Russell Westbrook. 9, Steve Nash. 8, Jason Kidd. 7, Chris Paul. 6, John Stockton. So at number 5, I have the logo. Jerry West. Now, a lot of people were upset that he wasn't on my shooting guard list, but he is listed as a point guard for most of his career. For a majority of it, I believe it was 10 years out of the 13 or so that he played, he was listed as a point guard. So that's why I went with him on the point guard list. And dude's accolades are out of this world. 14-time All-Star, an assist champion, 5-time All-Defensive Team, 12-time All-NBA, a finals MVP, the only finals MVP in a losing effort. Uh, he was the best player on so many teams that went to the finals but fell short uh, because of the Boston Celtics and Bill Russell and those guys. But his career is just so phenomenal when you look at it. Uh, his best season was the 69-70 season, averaged 31.2 points per game, 7.5 assists, shot 49% from the field. In the playoffs that same season, was right at 32.2, 31.2 points per game, 8.4 assists, and shot 46% from the field. Uh, for his career, 27 points per game. Like, and he played a long time. Like, that's a lot of scoring. 27 points per game, 6.7 assists, 5.8 rebounds on 47% shooting. For the playoffs, 29.1 points per game, 6.3 assists, 5.6 rebounds, and shot 46% from the field. I understand people, you know, make fun and say that he is the poster boy for kind of short in the finals because he has the most finals losses of, you know, any star all time. But he ran to better teams, right? It wasn't like he choked per se, because you look at his stats in the playoffs, he was balling. It wasn't it wasn't the fact that he came up short, it was that he just ran to a better team. And then once he got help, he got him a championship in seventy two. 
So you got to give all the respect in the world to Jerry West and what he did during his time in the league. So at number five, I have Jerry West. At number four, I got the big O, the original Mr. Triple Double, Oscar Robinson. Oscar Robinson is a 12-time All-Star, six times led the league in assists. 11-time All-NBA selection, Rookie of the Year, MVP, NBA champion. His best individual year was the 61-62 season. 30.8 points per game, 12.5 rebounds, 11.4 assists. Like, dominance. Craziness right there. Shot 47% from the field that season. In those playoffs, 31.8 points per game, 13 rebounds, 9 assists, and shot 47% from the field. For his career, 28.2 points per game, 9.5 assists, 7.5 rebounds on 48% shooting. In the playoffs, 22.2 points per game, 8.9 assists, 6.7 rebounds, shot 46% from the field. Uh, he's very similar to Jerry West in that they were outstanding individually and just didn't have the teams to get all the way when they were the main guy. And then once they got that help with Oscar Robinson, he got Kareem. But Jerry Wells, he got Will Chamberlain. And once they got that help, they were able to get over the top and get that championship. So you have to give both those guys all credit in the world for what they did during their time. And I couldn't disrespect them and I had them on the list for sure because they deserve to be top five all time when it comes to point guard play. So now we're getting to the top three. So who do I have at number three? I have... The bad boy himself, Isaiah Thomas, Detroit Pistons, great. He's five times All-NBA selection, 12-time All-Star, Finals MVP, two-time champion, three Finals appearances as the best player on the Detroit Pistons. His best individual season came before those Finals appearances, though. The 83-84 season. A lot of people forget about Detroit pre-bad boy era. They were an offensive squad. That really went up and down the floor, and he flourished offensively during that time. That season had 21.2 points per game, 14 assists per game. Like, that's just stupid. What? <laughs> just dumb. A 2.3 steals per game, shot 46% from the field and 34% from three. Again, he wasn't shooting a crazy amount of threes back then, but was efficient when he did shoot them. Uh, in the playoffs, he had one of his best years where they played 20 games that season. He scored 20.5 points per game, 8.2 assists, 5.5 rebounds per game, shot 46% from the field and 47% from three. Uh, for his career, 19.2 points per game, 9.3 assists per game, two steals, shot 45% from the field. And for his playoff career, 20.4 points per game, nine assists, 2.1 steals per game, shot 44% from the field. He made the all-star game Every year he was healthy. So every year up until his last season, made the All-Star game. And it's still a crime against humanity that he wasn't on a dream team. I understand that the Detroit Pistons and their style of play wasn't popular back then. But, and he wasn't very well liked. But man, maybe, you know, you get to, you go to a different country and you bond and they would have got to know him better maybe. And I feel like it's a mistake that the coaches and whoever's over Team USA shouldn't have allowed to happen. Unless Michael Jordan explicitly said he wouldn't have played. 
Now, Michael Jordan denies that. He says that he did not say that he wouldn't come if Isaiah came. But I think it was understood. But they should have asked him. Instead of beating around the bush like it's been reported that they did, they should have asked him, hey, Isaiah Thomas is one of the best 12 players on the planet. We should have him on his team. He should have took Christian Leitner's spot. Like, what? What are we doing? Christian Leitner? The fact that Christian Leitner was on the Dream Team is a crime. It's a crime. I understand he was the best college player maybe ever. Right? But that's college. This was the dream team of professional NBA players, and it should have had Isaiah Thomas on it. No doubt about it. But Isaiah, man, when you look back at his career, the fact that the Pistons made it to back-to-back-to-back finals and then won back-to-back championships with him as the best player cannot go you know, underrated or understated. You think about that era where it was all about the Celtics and the Lakers, and then Chicago's coming on, and the Pistons stopped the Bulls from becoming what the Bulls became later on. Like they put a pause in that because they were so great. And they ended the Celtics dominance in the Eastern Conference. We're able to beat the Lakers in the finals. All that with Isaiah Thomas as the best guy on that team. Now, of course, it was a very well-rounded team, especially defensively. But Isaiah Thomas, when they needed offense, he came through. Even on a severely sprained ankle, came through. And that's why he's number three on my list. Number two, Steph Curry, nine-time All-NBA selection, four-time NBA champion, two-time MVP, two-time scoring champion, finals MVP. Uh, His best season was a 2015-16 season. Averaged 30.1 points per game, 6.7 assists per game, 5.4 rebounds per game, 2.1 steals per game. Shot 50% from the floor, 45% 45% from three, 90% from the free throw line. The efficiency is just stupid. So earlier, I talked about Steve Nash's numbers, right? Steve Nash had that efficiency while averaging 17, 18, maybe 20 points a game. Steph Curry has that efficiency of Steve Nash while averaging 30 points a game. Like, the fact that he could be that efficient on that volume of shooting while being responsible for so much offense as far as scoring the basketball is crazy. Nuts. Nuts. Uh, His best playoff run was also that season where he averaged 27.4 points per game, 5.9 assists per game, 5.2 rebounds, shot 46% from the floor and 40% from three. Uh, You can make an argument for that season or the 2022 season where he won a championship. He got finals MVP. You can make a case for either one of those playoff runs. Uh, But for his career, regular season, 24.6 points per game, 6.5 assists per game, 4.7 rebounds per game, shot 47% from the floor, 42% from three, and 90% from the line. What? That, like, greatest shoe of all time, bar none. Craziness. Uh, For his playoff career, 27 points per game, 6.2 assists, 5.2 rebounds, 45% from the floor, and 40% from three. And he's still not done. He's still not done. He has so much career left. He may catch number one, but he has not caught number one yet. Number one, Magic Johnson, 10-time All-NBA selection, three-time MVP, five-time NBA champion, led the league in assists four separate times, three finals MVPs. His best regular season was the 86-87 season, 24 points a game, 
12.2 assists per game, 6.3 rebounds on 52% shooting. In those playoffs, he averaged 21.8 points per game, 12.2 assists per game, 7.7 rebounds per game on 54% shooting. Uh, for his career, 19.5 points per game, 11.2 assists, 7.2 rebounds on 52% shooting, along with two steals. Just pulling up the stat sheet. For his playoff career, playoff, those numbers are very similar. 19.5 points per game, 12.3 assists, 7.7 rebounds on 50% shooting and two steals as well. Magic Johnson, man, 6'9 point guard who, for his time, was just unprecedented. And even if he played today, he may not be listed as the point guard, but he would be in a LeBron James type fashion where he would essentially run the offense through him and he would still put up those same numbers. He was not one of those people where you look back at his highlights and think, oh, he wasn't athletic enough to play in today's game. No, he was. He was. He wasn't this crazy good athlete. He wasn't Dominique Wilkins or Michael Jordan back then, but magically because he was so tall and had this crazy vision and was able to lead the break so well, the Showtime Lakers are one of the, you know, just iconic teams in history because of that. They have documentaries and TV shows made about him because of Magic Johnson. You think about the fact that he's a three-time MVP. Three-time finals MVP. Like, the accolades speak for themselves, but when you watch Magic Johnson, he was the epitome of the point guard at the size of a power forward. Just absolutely nuts what he was able to do during his career. And you just have to give him all the credit in the world for getting through the tough times and not letting the good times get to his head, right? I think he was a rookie, and he won a championship. And then he had a tough time where, you know, he failed in the finals, and people were calling him Tragic Johnson instead of Magic Johnson, but he bounced back. And if his career wasn't cut short by, you know, the HIV virus, no telling what his stats would be. And then... In 1996, so he had to retire in 91, 91 or 92 because of HIV. Comes back in 96 as a bigger version of himself and was still able to put up 14, 7, and 7 for the little time he played that year because he was just so good at controlling the action and his vision was so good and his IQ was so high. Magic Johnson, man, if you are young and not familiar with his game, go YouTube some stuff, man, because... It was unbelievable to watch because I'm young. I didn't see Magic in his prime, but watching the highlights and going back and watching some games, you see why he was so special and why he is the best point guard of all time. So before we get out of here, let me give you my 10 through 1 one last time. Again, this is going to be controversial. Uh, um, let me give you my honorable mention first. So, of course, there's some good players, some great players who missed the list. Damian Lillard just missed out of the top 10 but I couldn't put him over the players on that list even though I would take Damian Lillard over Russell Westbrook I personally would but the accolades that Russell Westbrook has and the stats that he put up I had to give Russ that spot Bob Cousy Bob Cousy was great for his time but there's no way when you look at his stats and compare them to today's players that you could put him on that list no way because even the great players from around that time who did make this list, their stats match up. Jerry West, Oscar Robinson, their stats match up. Bob Cousy's stats, he was shooting like 38% from the field. So I give him respect for what he did, but not a top 10 point guard of all time in my book. Gary Payton, maybe the best defensive point guard of all time, 
but I just couldn't put him on this list over these other players who accomplished just a little bit more. It was tough. It was very tough to leave those guys off. There's other, there's other ones as well, Tony Parker, and so many great point guards throughout history, but those guys just missed my list. At number 10, Russell Westbrook. Number 9, Steve Nash. 8, Jason Kidd. 7, Chris Paul. 5, or 6, excuse me, John Stockton. 5, Jerry West. 4, Oscar Robinson. 3, Isaiah Thomas. 2, Steph Curry. 1, Magic Johnson. So like I said earlier, man, if you enjoy this show, please let me know. The feedback definitely keeps me going. You know, like it's not like I look for validation, but just getting that validation definitely helps you realize that you're doing a good job. Like I can enjoy the podcast all I want to, but it's about you guys, the fans and the listeners, and how much you enjoy the podcast. Um, please share it with your friends and family. Follow me on social media at the Real Deal WDA on all platforms. That's on the platform formerly known as Twitter. That's on Instagram, TikTok. Instagram is the Real Deal WDA two. Uh, on TikTok, it's the Real Deal WDA. Everywhere. So go ahead and follow me. You'll get different content on different platforms. So go ahead and check me out. And until next time, go real. I go home.